Welcome to the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Now here's your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. In today's episode, we're tackling a critical and often overlooked aspect of our community's well-being, poverty reduction, and the housing challenges in Newfoundland and Labrador. These issues aren't just about numbers on a page, they're about real people, real struggles, and the profound impacts these challenges can have on health and people's quality of life. Our special guest today is Dan Needs. Now he's an expert working at the Transition House Association. Dan brings a wealth of experience in addressing the housing crisis and poverty reduction, not just locally, but globally. With a passion rooted in real world experiences, Dan offers a unique perspective on how housing insecurity and poverty directly affect health and well-being. We'll dive into the complexities of the housing situation in Newfoundland and Labrador, exploring the skyrocketing cost of rent, diminishing availability of rental units, and the alarming rise in visible homelessness. Dan will shed light on the multifaceted nature of this crisis, its impact on different demographics, including students, middle-class families, and those on fixed incomes. The conversation with Dan will also delve into the crucial role of community organizations like the Transition House Association. They work tirelessly to provide shelter and support for women and children fleeing violence. We'll hear about the challenges they face and the solutions they propose in these trying times. Importantly, we'll discuss the broader implications of poverty and housing insecurity on health. From mental health struggles to physical well-being, the link between financial insecurity and health is undeniable and deeply concerning. So let's get to our chat with Dan Meads. Hi, Dan. Welcome back to the show. Hey, nice to chat. Yeah, it's great to have you back. First time you're on the show, you were telling me all about your running and your outdoor trail work and, and all the amazing things you've done for that. But today we're talking about a more serious issue, especially because it's so broad reaching across the province. We're going to talk about how important housing is for people and what it does for their health. Can you give me a bit of a background on what you do in your professional life? Yeah, sure. You know, I love trail running, but my real passion, the thing I spend most of my time on doing is working on housing homelessness and poverty reduction work. That work started for me back in about 2004 when I went to work for the United Nations in West Africa. And I've been doing this type of work all over sort of North America and the rest of the world. And then I moved back home uh, about 10 years ago here to St. John's. And not too long after that, I started working where I work now, the Transition House Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, and I'm really lucky that this job allows me to focus on some of the specifics around housing insecurity as well as domestic violence, but also have a broader picture on what poverty reduction should look like in Newfoundland Labrador and, and what the landscape of poverty really is right now. And that's exactly why I wanted to reach out to you today. I knew that you were the person who could give us the insights and also take that lens on health, which I think is so important, in particular for, for this show. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what your organization does? Yeah, sure. So. The- the Transition House Association works with the 11 transition houses. Those are shelters for women and children fleeing violence. So there's 11 of those transition houses all throughout Newfoundland and Labrador. And I have the privilege of working with those shelters to help them work together and help government understand the type of work that they're doing and solve some of the problems that come up in the process of housing and providing services to those women and children that are fleeing violence in Newfoundland and Labrador. So that includes some you know, downstream things like housing supply and income support, but it also includes a lot of upstream things like violence prevention work, but also poverty reduction and housing insecurity work at that top end of things to try to make sure that folks aren't susceptible to some of the things that often lead to violent situations and stop women and children from leaving violent situations if they do find themselves there. 
That's right. I mean, such a vulnerable population, women and children that are in situations like that where they have no place to go. They're facing violence at home. They, they need a safe place to live. But these days, we're hearing about challenges with housing across the board. I mean, I'm a professor at the university. I hear about challenges with students. I hear about challenges with people when it comes to the cost of living in our province. Do you have any optics on what the housing situation is like here in Newfoundland and Labrador? Yeah, and so I, I think there's a few things to keep in mind. One of them is that Newfoundland and Labrador is no different than anywhere else in the country at this moment. And so we are seeing housing security at rates that we've never seen before. We're seeing it exhibit itself in lots of ways that lots of us who have traveled have seen in other places. And so what some of us call rough sleeping, right, kind of visual, visible homelessness, folks sleeping outside. That was the thing that we didn't see a ton of in Newfoundland Labrador. And now, you know, we have a tent encampment, a colonial building. We're seeing these signs of housing insecurity and homelessness all around us every day. And we're seeing some of the knock-on effects that come along with that type of lifestyle as well. And I'm sure we'll get into some of those things. But when we talk about specifically around housing, we're seeing the cost of rents skyrocket, right? We're seeing the availability of, of rental units diminish and diminish and diminish. There's a bunch of reasons for that a lack of government-funded supply, uh, as well as you know some of these short-term rentals like Airbnb are causing some significant issues as well. Um, but we are seeing what can only be described as a housing crisis here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And so for those that aren't homeowners that have just been renting or have been trying to find places to rent, the pressures are real for them, but also for folks you know who've got variable rate mortgages because of inflation and interest rates going up are seeing those variable rates go higher and higher and higher. That functionally increases the poverty line, right? And so when the cost of everything goes up, your dollar goes less per. And so you've got to make more and more and more just to make that poverty line. And we're seeing folks getting edged out of the housing market who felt like they were pretty comfortably in there and having to really rethink what it means to be a homeowner in today's in today's society. And so, you know, everybody from the middle class on down are really getting pinched in the housing market right now. Um We've seen some potential solutions, right? CMHC has said that Newfoundland and Labrador needs 60,000 new units in the next, within the next 10 years just to meet housing demand. That number, we could argue with the number if we wanted to, and I know that lots of politicians like to argue with that number, but no matter what the number is, it's really big, whether it's 60,000 or 50,000 or 30,000. It's really big, especially given the number of units that the government in Newfoundland and Labrador has been able to manufacture, to be able to build over the last few years. Um, and so that huge number that's going to be required is really troublesome because there's no plan in place right now that's going to come anywhere near that giant number to start to impact the housing market the way we needed to. Well, it's interesting. You just said something that you know I think maybe people aren't fully aware of yet, but I came from Fredericton originally. In Fredericton, there was all these little strawberry boxes that were called houses that were built for the military after the war, and they were all developed by CMHA. Uh, can you explain quickly what that process is that they're going through and how this might actually help with expediting new homes, or at least they believe it will? Yeah, so there is some federal money coming into the province and all provinces right now to try to expedite some new builds. And that, that money is going to some nonprofits that do housing work. It's also going to subsidize some loan guarantees in the private sector and some other things in the private sector as well. What the hope is, is that you know since the 70s, provinces like Newfoundland and Labrador, but lots of others as well, haven't done a great job of building subsidized housing. So we see Newfoundland and Labrador housing units all over Newfoundland and Labrador, and most of them were built in the 70s. There is this notion that if we have a, a big influx of federal money now, we could try to get ahead of what's already this, this housing crisis. Now, it is worth noting that the amount of dollars coming in 
from the federal government through CMHC is nowhere near the amount to build that 60,000 units. It's also worth noting, Mike, that there is another side to this puzzle, right? So many of us have equity in our homes, and that equity is what we're relying on down the road as part of our retirement. Lots and lots and lots of Canadians are in that situation. The result of 60,000 new homes being built in Newfoundland and Labrador, whether they're mixed use or single dwelling, whatever, would have a drastic impact on the value of the current homes that are here, right? So supply goes up. What we're seeing is demand go down. When demand goes down, prices also go down. This is how the free market works. And so there is this real tension between homeowners and the vulnerable populations, which is that in order to have people not rough sleeping, in order to have everyone to have a home which they deserve and is a human right, we need to, a, a ton more housing supply. If we were able to have a ton more housing supply, there would be a knock-on impact on the value of people's homes that they're currently in today. And that's part of the reason that this, this problem hasn't been tackled by governments the way that it should be. We're here with anti-poverty advocate Dan Meads talking about the connection between our health and our income and housing security. We'll be right back after the break. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back. I'm here with Dan Meads talking about the connection between our health and our income and housing security. Let's get back to the episode. When we think about that financial security and that financial wellness, that can also have an impact on our overall health and wellness. Is there a correlation between housing security, but also financial security and poverty and health? Let me tell you a story about my friends in Hamilton, Ontario. This was some work that I was a part of. I was really lucky to be a part of, and it's a little bit dated now. We did this work almost 15 years ago. It was called a Code Red Report to if you Google cold code red Hamilton, Ontario, you'll find this. What we did is we studied two different postal codes in Hamilton. We studied the wealthiest postal code and we studied the least wealthy postal code, all within the municipality of Hamilton, Ontario. And we did a bunch of really interesting work with folks there. We used a bunch of stats can data and we worked with the individuals in those two communities, right? The two postal codes. And we learned a ton of interesting things. The most important thing we learned is that wealthy people in Hamilton live 22 years longer than poor people in Hamilton, Ontario. That's the life expectancy difference in Canada between whether you're rich or whether you're poor. And interestingly, it's a binary difference. So if you're living below the poverty line, that's that 22-year difference. Whereas if you're living just slightly above the poverty line, you can make up that 22-year gap. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us a thousand things that I found interesting all throughout my career. But the most important one that it tells us is this. The negative impacts on one's health of living in poverty because of the lack of choices that you have, right? So your home is not going to be a place that's a healthy place with healthy air. You're not going to have the ability to do, you know, asbestos abatement and mold abatement. You're not going to be able to live in a healthy place. You're not going to be able to afford healthy food. You're not going to have the time and the energy to invest in your own health through exercise and all the other things that we know make a difference in our quality of life day to day, but also in our life expectancy and our overall health long term. That's the difference. It's a 22-year life expectancy difference in Canada. Now, I want to be really clear. Hamilton, Ontario, is where we did this work. There's nothing special about Hamilton in this regard. You could do that same work anywhere in Canada, a wealthy postal code versus a postal code with mostly people living in poverty, and you're going to find a very similar life expectancy difference. And so people sometimes say, like, you know, I understand that there are health impacts to being poor. It's really hard to quantify. It's not hard to quantify. We know the difference. It's more than two days of life expectancy. 
Wow, that's that's unbelievable. And that's length of life. Okay, so let's talk about quality of life. When our life ends, it's because our physical body is given out on us. What are the mental health challenges that are associated with poverty and housing security? Yeah, we can talk about this in the same analytical way if we want to. There's a few ways we think about mental health, right? One of them is a little oversimplified, but for this conversation, I think it's really useful. And that's to think about happiness. Let's, let's talk to people about how happy they are. We can ask them that over decades and decades and decades. So researchers at the University of Calgary did this work where they had a longitudinal study over many decades where they asked people how happy they were and they correlated that with income. Here's what they learned. If you make less than $65,000 a year in Canada, you think more money would make you happy. And you're right. If you made more than $65,000 a year in Canada, you think making more money would make you happy and you're wrong. And so that's the hard cutoff around happiness. That's a a measure of wellness, perhaps, but it's not a measure of mental illness. What we do see is this really difficult feedback loop for individuals living in poverty, especially with acute housing needs. So folks that are really living, you know, living homeless or sleeping rough, those individuals have a really tough feedback loop with mental illness. And that includes addictions, right? Sometimes we're, we're really willing to separate addictions from mental illness, but we really need to stop. And part of this conversation needs to be the recognition that addiction is a form of mental illness. And every time we make that distinction, we're not really doing justice to folks that are suffering with addictions in our communities. So addiction and mental illness are together. And then there's this really tough cycle. Are you homeless because of your uncontrolled mental illness? Does your uncontrolled mental illness make you homeless because you're not able to make some of the choices or do some of the behaviors, take some of the action that are required to make sure that you're able to earn some money and, and live in a stable home? It is a tough feedback loop there, and there's no easy answer. But here's what we've learned from doing this work over the years. If you want to break that feedback loop, you need to implement what's called a housing first model. It's really simple. It says you can't address your mental illness. You can't address food insecurity. You can't address any of the things that are causing you to be homeless and suffering and, and, and having ill health until you have a home. That's the first step. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A shelter is not a whole shelter is a fine short-term solution if you're experiencing acute homelessness. That is not the same as a housing first model. We take an individual, we find them a safe, appropriate place to live, and then we provide wraparound supports to address all those other things that we've talked about that are in some ways causing homelessness and in other ways are caused by homelessness. We get the homelessness taken care of first, then we have way more success dealing with everything else that's going on. Oh, that's really interesting. So I've interviewed a, a team from 12 Neighbors in Fredericton, New Brunswick, which really takes that exact same model towards it. And I'm sure that's a, a philosophy that's best practiced around different communities like this. And I guess, you know, you kind of took the next question out of my mouth, really, is that the, how does the stress of housing insecurity impact individuals' ability to manage their other life aspects, like their employment, like their education? Like, why, when we provide people with homes, does this become easier to achieve? Yeah, I think there's a there's a simple and a complicated answer to this problem. The first, the simple answer, believe it or not, is that a sense of home provides a sense of responsibility to oneself, but also that home, right? Once you have some safety, you can take some personal responsibility. And while I do not think that personal responsibility is the cause or solution to homelessness, when we're trying to help people change their lives and move from a place of of poverty and homelessness and addiction and mental illness and help them move to a different place in their lives, helping them find a sense of self-responsibility is an important piece of that. 
Also, you know, little things like providing them with enough money to afford food is also very big on that list of things we can do. But a home allows folks to have a safe place to call their own, some dignity, some self-respect, and then some responsibility for their own actions and their own behaviors. Hmm. Okay. So let's now look at some specific populations within that group and identify that, you know, obviously having a home, having uh, proper or adequate finances, maybe not the most. And it's ironic, you said the happiness uh, about at a certain threshold. I went to Bhutan last year, and in Bhutan, they're far from being extremely wealthy society, uh, but they're the happiest in the world because they seem to value having enough, right? And I think that's an important distinction between our culture and theirs. But let's look at specific populations. How does facing poverty impact the youngest people in our communities? Yeah, a few things to keep in mind. Newfoundland Labrador has the highest child poverty rate in Canada today at 9%. So just breaking down what that means. 9% of kids in Newfoundland and Labrador today are living in poverty. Well, stop. Worst metric in Canada. Yeah. What do we know about kids who live in poverty? They grow up to be adults who live in poverty, who have kids who live in poverty. This is called the intergenerational trap of poverty. We know, you know, there's this this thing that says, hey, you know, how can you tell whether or not someone's going to go to university or how can you tell whether or not someone's going to be in or above the middle middle class? And the answer is just a postal code is all you need because if they grew up in poverty, they tend to still live in poverty and have children that grow up in poverty. Now, there are ways through this and there are ways around it, but one of the things that we know happened to kids living in poverty, we can't always just provide, we can't provide those children with income, right? We need to make sure we're providing that family unit with enough income to make choices that are going to benefit those kids and benefit their health. The number one choice that you can make for children and their health is good, nutritious, plentiful food. Newfoundland Labrador also has the highest rates of food insecurity in all of Canada. And so it's no surprise that we've got a ton of children living in poverty. Those children are experiencing food insecurity and then they're having negative outcomes at school. They're having negative outcomes at school because you can't learn anything on an empty tummy. You just can't do it. No kid learns to read, learns math, learns any of the behavioral things you want kids to learn in school when all they're thinking about is how hungry they are. So if we really want to make a positive intervention on poverty in Newfoundland and Labrador, it's got to be a generational change. And that generational change has to start by making sure that we have fewer kids living in poverty. Now, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador has recently announced what they're calling a poverty reduction strategy. I think that's a bit of a generous description of this thing, but one of the areas that they have identified is reducing childhood poverty. One of the things they've done is increase the Newfoundland and Labrador child benefit by a ton, by almost three times. That's good public policy. That makes a ton of sense, and I'm really glad they chose to do that. I've, you know, there's lots of criticisms to be made about the rest of this plan in lots of ways, but I will say that increasing Newfoundland and Labrador child benefit was a very good move by the government of Newfoundland and Labrador, and that happens this month. And so we're, we, I can hope to see some positive impacts on that childhood poverty number in the relatively near future. That's great. I've been involved with different things like the health accord throughout the last number of years. And one of the things that really come up are the social determinants of health. And that's something that, you know, obviously we're, we're born into a certain set of circumstances. We have a certain set of opportunities and this really predisposes us to different outcomes. And of course you can break that cycle on your own, but that's very difficult because we are dealt a set of cards. Like you said, it's a postal code quite often for people. When it comes to another vulnerable population I think of that is also feeling a lot of stress financially these days, think about senior citizens. And I know Newfoundland has one of the oldest populations in the country. How is poverty impacting some of those individuals? Yeah. So poverty in seniors is a really interesting thing for a few reasons. In Canada, 
in the 70s and early 80s, poverty among our seniors rate was extremely high all over Canada. Government implemented, it wasn't called the Guaranteed Income Supplement at the time, but now we call it the GIS or the Guaranteed Income Supplement. This is an example of a basic income program. It says once you're a senior citizen, you're able to receive a basic income, a guaranteed in- income supplement, and that's going to get you by. Now, whether that number is enough or not, we can have that discussion, but it is certainly far higher than any other income support rate in Canada. And so that GIS, that guaranteed income supplement for seniors, reduced poverty among seniors in Canada drastically overnight. What that tells us is this. There's no secret to how we end poverty in specific populations. You can pick it by age. You can pick it by gender. doesn't matter. Give people enough money to live and you can reduce poverty. Does it solve all the problems? Of course, it doesn't solve all the problems, but it does go an awful long way to allowing people to make the choices they need to make in order to meet their basic needs. And that's really what has happened in seniors. And so while there are still a problem with senior poverty in Newfoundland and Labrador and all across the country, that rate tends to be significantly lower than working age people. Because once you qualify for that guaranteed income supplement, you tend to be doing a fair bit better. Now, 60 to 64 year olds here in Newfoundland and Labrador, that's a different that's a different problem altogether. And again, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador is targeting that population between 60 and 64 is trying to improve their incomes. If you're 59, however, you're still out of luck in this province and that's a real shame. We're here with anti-poverty advocate, Dan Meads, talking about the connection between our health and our income and housing security. We'll be right back after the break. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back. I'm here with Dan Meads talking about the connection between our health and our income and housing security. Let's get back to the episode. And I guess that we can get into some specific stories now, because I know you deal with people on the front lines on a day-to-day basis. Can you share any examples of how lack of housing or, or poverty directly impacts an individual's health? Yeah, I mean, I think what people need to realize, the number one thing that I, I want to tell folks to contextualize what it means to live in poverty and how that impacts your health is think of yourself when you're not taking care of yourself. Okay, so think of yourself when you're feeling really great. You've got lots of time to make sure that you're preparing good food and that you're consuming that in a way that makes you feel good. You're spending some time outdoors if that feels good to you. You're exercising. You've got some sort of a balance between what you consider work and what you consider the rest of your life. You're spending some time with your kids if you've got children and you're feeling pretty good. So that's like one set of circumstances that I can identify for myself as like making me feel pretty good. So like personally, I feel good when I'm eating in a way that fills my body well, when I'm running every day. When I'm spending time outside, ideally outside with my kid, she's eight, she's really fun. It's a great way to spend time. If I'm doing those things, generally, I feel pretty good. If you're living in poverty, you don't have the ability to make those choices almost ever. There is this notion that people living in poverty are sitting around doing nothing, right? They don't have jobs or they're really just wasting away their time. It couldn't be further from the truth, especially when you have a minimum wage in this province so far below the poverty line. Anybody you know makes minimum wage, they're living in poverty. They're living in poverty even though they've got that job that you see and the job you don't see that they're heading to when they get off this shift serving you coffee or making your hamburger. Those individuals are the working poor. and We've got tens of thousands of them in Newfoundland and Labrador. Those individuals don't have the time to think about how they're going to feed their bodies well, how they're going to spend time outside exercising, reducing stress. All of those things compound. 
Now, if you take it to its furthest extreme and you think about the folks that are sleeping outside tonight, you know, in, in early January in Newfoundland and Labrador when it's below zero outside and you're not wearing a great downfill jacket, how does that impact your health doing it night overnight overnight? You don't need to be a doctor to know the difference there, that there's a meaningful difference in rough sleeping and sleeping inside your home with the furnace on. These, these choices that we're making as a society that say, hey, it's okay for folks working full-time to live in poverty and not be able to take care of themselves, they have impacts on us as individuals because these are our neighbors. This is our community, right? And so then we're seeing some of the knock-on effects of having so many people living in poverty. It also has a ton of economic costs to our province. And this is a story that I don't think people in Newfoundland and Labrador are telling or hearing enough. There are four major costs that poverty has on our community. The first one is the health system, right? First and foremost, poverty costs the health system tens of billions of dollars a year across Canada. It's unbelievable. The second one is the justice system. When you have so many people living in poverty, they have no choice, and it is not a choice, but to turn to some, some activities that are against the law. That has an impact on our justice system. The education system. Our education system costs us a lot more when we have so many people arriving to school with empty bellies and all of the knock-on impacts that has there. And then the fourth one is what we call intergenerational costs of poverty. And that's what we've talked about, kids that are growing up or tend to be adults who are living in poverty and then have children that are also living in poverty. And so, you know, it would be really great if we said anybody living in any Flint and or housing unit today was going to be given the tools, the income, the food, the tools, the training they need to make sure their children also didn't grow up in a nuclear labor housing unit. However, that's not the case. We're seeing generation after generation after generation of people that are forced to do that same thing. So live in the same block of subsidized housing that their parents lived in. I want to be clear, Mike, I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with living in subsidized housing, but it is an indication of a lack of income. And the lack of income is what's causing some of these big effects that have health education, justice, and intergenerational costs to us as taxpayers. So it's an awful lot cheaper, way more affordable for us to address this poverty today than it is to allow the next generation of people to grow up poor in Newfoundland and Labrador. So Dan, you just said something I really wanted to talk about today, and that was the healthcare system. When we think about poverty, what are some of the health challenges that would be unique to individuals that are facing financial insecurity as compared to others? So the differences are many, but it's really important to think about the things that cost us just little bits of money can often be prohibitive to folks who are living in poverty, even those working poor that we talked about who are living in sort of modest poverty, right? So just below the poverty line. And so if you've got a um, a fee at the pharmacy that's cost seven or eight dollars, well, for those of us that are working and living above the poverty line, maybe that seven or eight dollars isn't something we even notice, but that could be the difference in somebody actually picking up the prescription that their doctor has prescribed or not picking up that prescription because they've got to use that seven or eight dollars to send one more day's lunch to their kid's school. And so it's those little choices that make a difference. There's also the long-term problems that we see when people have no choice but to live unhealthy lifestyle all day long. So eating unhealthy foods, I can remember a conversation I had early in my career. I was living and working in Calgary, Alberta, and I was talking to a, a, a great guy who was living on the street. And I asked him, I was like, hey, you know, what do you what do you eat most days? Like, like what's the what's normally on the menu? And he said, Oh, if I've only got a couple of bucks, I'll definitely buy a bag of Doritos because it makes me feel full all day. There's so many calories there. Five dollars for a big bag of Doritos. That's that's gonna make me not think about my stomach for for a majority of the day. Whereas 
you know, that guy definitely wasn't picking up broccoli. Um, he wasn't thinking about nice chicken breasts. He was he was picking up something that was going to make him feel satiated, and it certainly wasn't the healthiest choices for him. And so, you know, yeah. it's really easy for those of us that are making different choices to that to feel some sense of judgment, right? Or, you know, we hear this argument all the time. I'm not going to give money to panhandlers because I don't know what they're going to do with the money. They might buy cigarettes or alcohol. Thankfully, nobody judges what I do with the paycheck I get, Mike. No one wonders if I'm drinking a beer whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing. And I think that sense of judgment that we have on people living in poverty, it's important for us to check in ourselves when we have that thought, because it's not fair to judge the choices folks are making, even when they're living in poverty, even when they're paying and we're choosing whether or not to give them a few bucks out of our pocket. Those individuals get to do with that money whatever they feel like is best for them at the moment, even if those things are objectively not healthy choices. So folks living in yeah poverty are facing those things, right? Where they don't have the ability to make the broader, healthy lifestyle choices, but also day to day, if you're in a situation where you don't have a ton to look forward to, where you're you're not sort of planning for tomorrow and the next day and the next day, you're not thinking about those big financial choices. Sometimes it does become much easier to think about, you know, short-term things that are going to make you feel okay, including alcohol, cigarettes, mm. and other having significant negative impacts on those individuals' health. Yeah. And I also think about when it comes about the health and the, the health care, uh, I'm guessing that individuals who are struggling with having a home are also not ones that have family doctors and specialists and people like that to avail of to help you know them with their health as well. And that might add an additional stress on the emergency room, for example, the, where they have no place to turn. Absolutely. We see ER visits among people living in poverty way, way, way higher than the rest of the population. Because anything that's chronic or emergent isn't getting treated, isn't getting assessed. And then even if it does get assessed, that we're, we're not seeing folks that are taking prescription meds in the way that they're supposed to over a long term. Uh, and so then you end up with more emergency room visits, you end up with more stays in acute care. And we all know that the cost of a hospital bed is far more than the cost of a shelter bed. And the cost of a shelter bed is far more than actually housing somebody appropriately for that same amount of time. The only thing more expensive than a hospital is a jail cell, which is, of course, also one of the knock-on impacts of having such a high population living in poverty in the province. We're here with anti-poverty advocate Dan Meads, talking about the connection between our health and our income and housing security. We'll be right back after the break. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 5.45 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune in to Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back. I'm here with Dan Meads talking about the connection between our health and our income and housing security. Let's get back to the episode. I guess that brings us down to some solutions now. You know, what are some preventative measures that we can take to impact these, in particular, let's keep on the focus of health here for the sake of the show, you know, mitigate these health impacts when it comes to poverty and, and housing? Income, income, income. Anytime we have this conversation and the first solution proposed isn't a meaningful income increase for those on income support in Newfoundland and Labrador, we are completely missing the boat. So what I'm what I'm really getting at here, right? Income support rates are currently below half of the poverty line. Right now they're 42% of the poverty line for most folks on income support. That means if you were to double income support, people would still be living in poverty. They'd still be in a position where they're choosing between rent and food, between food and diapers for their kids. We need to find a way, and it's not difficult public policy, it's just an investment, that's all it is, 
to make sure that folks have enough money to make better choices for themselves and their families. And if we're going to do that, even if it was 80% of the poverty line, which is sort of a, a general statistic that those of us that do this work, that's a bit of a metric, right? We say, hey, if you're not going to pay people directly to the poverty line on income support, get them to 80% and then provide them with some housing benefits and some other things to make sure that they can make ends meet. That would make a huge difference in their ability to choose healthy lifestyles as opposed to unhealthy lifestyles. Um, it also means that you know the other knock-on effects kids going to school hungry, all of those things, those, all of those negative knock-ons go way down when folks have got enough income to make those choices. Ultimately, if you want people in your community to not live in poverty, you've either got to give them enough money to afford the basic needs or subsidize those basic needs so they don't need as much income. So either we need a ton more subsidized housing units or we need to pay people on income support enough to afford market rate housing those are the two solutions. Like We talk about poverty as being complex. We talk about the solution as needing to be complex. I agree with all of those things intellectually, except we're not doing the easy bits by either providing them with enough income to those choices and, and afford housing or provide enough subsidized housing that they don't need the income. We've got to do one or the other. Otherwise, we're going to continue to see increases in, in, in homelessness. Yeah, and I guess another role would be that if there is funding, there's also funding to uh, organizations that are going to help and assist with this. How do those types of community groups play a role in helping facilitate change? Yeah, so you know it's a complicated answer, and I want to be really nuanced. Part of the beauty of this longer conversation is I get to give you a more complicated answer on this. I would love to see us not building more shelters. I would love to see the province of Newfoundland and Labrador be committing to reducing the number of shelter beds instead of increasing the number of shelter beds. The problem is because we're not doing the things that would be required for folks to have their own stable market rate or subsidized housing, we don't have a choice but to increase the number of shelter beds. So in a perfect world, we're investing less in the community sector. We're investing less in emergency responses. In a perfect world, we don't need as many folks doing this housing and security work. We don't need as much of that. We're always going to need some emergency shelters. We're always going to need frontline staff dealing with mental illness and addictions. I'm not suggesting that we don't need a robust nonprofit and community sector. I'm saying if we did a better job of addressing these problems upstream, I would happily be out of a job eagerly. And I had to tell you, the people that I know that work all over the country, we would love to be able to not do these types of interviews. We would love to have less to do. We would love to see fewer people needing shelter as opposed to more people needing shelter. There's this really interesting thing that happens in the specific world of, of shelters for women and children fleeing violence, and that's this. Over the last five to 10 years, so not a long time frame, we've seen not just an increase in need, so demand for transition houses, but an increase in complexity of need of those individuals that show up at our doorsteps. What I mean by that is that in the 70s and 80s and 90s, even up to 10 years ago, we had this idea of what a woman who needed shelter because of domestic violence looked like, what her situation was. We knew she was in her 40s, she had a couple of kids, she'd experienced abuse a number of times and eventually had, had been in a position in her life to make the choice to seek shelter and try to break that cycle of abuse. Now we're seeing women of all ages, much younger and much older, who are presenting with uncontrolled addiction, uncontrolled mental illness, 
and a ton of complexity engaging in street life in a way that we've never seen before. And those individuals are all equally deserving of a good place to stay, but their need for those wraparound supports is much, much higher for that complex population than we've ever seen before. And so if we're going to continue to do this work where we're sheltering and we're trying to do this emergency response around homelessness, we've got to honor and recognize the increased complexity and fund and train our staff accordingly to try to meet those people where they are and address those complex needs as opposed to just saying, hey, we know you need a bed. We know you need a place that's safe for you and your children. Right now, we've got to start thinking very, very differently about what that urgent response looks like. And it's not just in transition houses. This is in all homeless shelters all across Newfoundland and Labrador. That response needs to be really nuanced and honor and recognize that complexity of care in a whole new way if you want to have any chance of breaking that cycle. See, that's an interesting perspective that you only get when you talk to somebody like yourselves. And one of the things that I'm learning through this is when I talk about health, sometimes as I talk about running and sometimes I talk about nutrition, but sometimes I talk about bigger issues that are challenging our community in a lot of ways. And I think that if there was a message you were give to the individuals that may not be in that poverty line circumstance and may see homelessness and poverty being an issue but may not understand it, what would you encourage them to do to learn more or to understand how it plays a larger role and does impact a lot of people in ways we may not have thought of before? Yeah, there is this comforting thing that none of us who aren't poor and have never been meaningfully poor do, and we do this intellectually. Uh, it's an emotional response, and lots and lots and lots of us do it. I have at lots of stages in my life as well. And that's to think that there is something fundamentally different about me. Maybe it's the choices I've made. Maybe it's how hard I've worked. I somehow deserve to not live in poverty. And those people I see that I walk past on Water Street or are staying at Colonial Building, those individuals, I don't really know, there's something different about them that caused this to happen. I would love it if folks listening to this would just take a moment and rethink that because I can tell you from a lifetime of experience that it is just luck that has made me talking to you on the radio today as opposed to sleeping in a tent in below zero temperatures. It is just luck that makes that difference. There's a thousand little times in my life that thing, if things had gone just slightly differently, I'd be in that tent at Colonial Building and any notion that I somehow deserve this comfortable life that I've gotten and that those individuals deserve the uncomfortable life that they are living, it's, it's, it's a comforting lie to tell yourself, but it is a lie. And it is important for us to question that at every opportunity we let it seep into our minds that there is somehow a fundamental difference between poor people and people who aren't poor. There is no difference. Those are our neighbors. Those are our friends. And anybody who's paying attention in Newfoundland and Labrador over the last five years and in the next five, I can assure you, it is people you know, it is your family, it is your friends, it is your neighbors who are suffering in the same way and it's new to them. And so I, you know, the one thing I would ask people to do is just rethink this us them mentality that somehow you're different than your neighbors who are living in poverty. You aren't different, you're just a little more lucky. And that, that just happens, it's not very comforting to but it is the truth. Yeah, that's 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 powerful. I appreciate that. And you know, from somebody who works in the field, you have an interesting perspective that I I wanted to hear from today. And I really appreciate you sharing a, a broader scope on the challenges we're facing in the community, but also specifically as it relates to health. Thanks so much for joining me again today, Mike. It's always good to talk to you. Thanks for your interest in this. I'd like to thank Dan for joining me today and sharing his knowledge on the pressing issues of poverty reduction and the housing challenges in Newfoundland. 
His insights remind us that these aren't just distant problems, but real-life situations impacting many of us in our community. From the housing crisis affecting a wide spectrum of society to the struggles faced by vulnerable populations like women and children fleeing violence, Dan's expertise has shed light on these critical topics. Some key takeaways from today's episode include the importance of understanding the complex relationship between housing insecurity, poverty, and health. This issue is a community concern, and it calls for a collective response. Remember, we can all play a part in making a difference, whether it's through supporting local organizations, advocating for policy changes, or simply being more aware and empathetic towards those struggling in our community. Every action counts. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of The Wall Show on your VOCF.